Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Breakpoint Podcast. I am Marcus Smith, and I am here with my co-host. Frank Nicolazzi. Frank is in the house today, as usual. Um, We are going to be doing a very interesting podcast that we've been thinking about for a while. Who is the biggest what-if in men's tennis history? Now, to preface this discussion, we're going to be talking about kind of a player who either did or did not make the full potential, whether or not it was injury-related or whether or not it was because of an era that they played in. Um, and in some cases, actually both. So, Frank, kick us off plain and simple. Who do you think is the biggest what-if in tennis history? And give me some reasons why. Yeah, so this is something that we've actually debated for a long time. And this is one of the other topics of this podcast that's kind of like uh, the inception of it. This is one of those topics that was one of the reasons why we started this. So I think there's a few, and we'll get into the honorable mentions later on but for me and i think for you also the clear number one is what happens if juan martin del potro never gets injured and i think it is because juan martin's del potro might be the most consequential injury in the history of ten in the history of men's tennis i'll qualify that because in all of tennis it might be monica Sellis. But for men's tennis, certainly it's Juan Martín del Potro. So I wrote down a few things uh, for him. So this is all in 2009, unless I specify sort of otherwise. In 2009, he went 54 and 16 overall, 17 and 3 in majors, including a U.S. Open win over Nadal and Federer in the final. In which he smoked Nadal in straight sets and then beat Federer in five sets. And I believe it was also down two sets to one. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. He came back to win that match. He was 18-8 and eight in Masters 1000s. Uh, and this was all at the age of 21. Got up to number three in the world in January um, the following year, right before Australia, right before the injury. <clears throat> So, pretty safe to say, Juan Martín del Potro looked to be on the rise. Uh, he was, and this is, <laughs> this, is, this is another insane fact, besides Nadal and Djokovic, del Potro is the only player to beat Federer in a Grand Slam final. And bear in mind, this was a 2009 Federer that was the five-time defending U.S. Open champion. So, this is prime Fed. Uh, in a slam final, and the first player before Djokovic to defeat both Nadal and Federer in the same Grand Slam tournament. Ridiculous. Ridiculous stats. In 2018, Juan Martin Del Potro, this is after all the injuries, all the surgeries, this is 29, 30-year-old Juan Martin Del Potro at this point in the 2018 season, Went 17-4 and four in majors, reached the U.S. Open final where he lost to Djokovic, Roland Garros semifinals, Wimbledon quarterfinals. So he's doing it on all three surfaces still. And this is after all the injuries, everything. Insane. Including one of the greatest shots in tennis history, by the way, if you remember that running forehand 
uh, in the semifinals of Wimbledon that year. That's like constantly shown on his career highlights. Yep, that's the one where it looks like it basically kind of goes around the post, right? Yeah, and he's not even really known for that. It's so funny. Um, and also to preface his injuries, he had some very gruesome wrist injuries post US Open win. Uh, this was kind of beginning of 2010. I remember he had a wrist, basically every wrist injury he had, he was about uh, maybe a year, uh, six months to a year out every time. And I believe he had four of those surgeries, by the way. So that 2018 stat that you just mentioned where he went 17 and four in majors, he did that with basically no backhand, by the way, because his left wrist was so messed up that literally he just pushed his backhand across court. He couldn't, because he used to have a really good two-hander. Um, where he could actually kind of pound through the ball, get some spin on it, deal with heavy topspin from guys like Nadal. This is why he was kind of like a quote-unquote Nadal killer, because he was so tall, could handle him on hard courts, on clay. It's a different story, obviously. But he did this all in 2018 with like literally zero backhand and almost, I mean, kind of almost beat Djokovic in the US Open final. I know he lost in four sets, but he kept it very interesting. And then after he unfortunately um and we haven't really seen him since is when he banged up his knee what is that a queen's club i think yeah he like basically slid out and he tore his kneecap he's had a couple of setbacks good news everybody the man is back playing tennis and the guy does not stop i don't know whether or not he'll win another grand slam or be a slam contender but it would be a phenomenal story if he came back and he's one of my favorite players on tour he is one of if not my favorite player my favorite player on the tour that's not like Roger Federer or something like that. I think everyone our age is obsessed with Juan Martin Del Potro. He is such a fan favorite. And yeah, he's just so beloved. So I'm so happy he's coming back. And so now that we've established sort of why, like, this guy was pretty damn good, pre and post injury, he's pretty damn good. Why Why exactly is he the biggest what if? And I think that the biggest what, why, the reason why he is the biggest what if is because he single-handedly could have stopped the Big Three era. And I think even members of the Big Three have acknowledged this guy really could have been a person that did some damage in this era and could have prevented a number of majors going to them. Define what you mean by stopping the Big Three era. I mean, in the same way that there was a brief period where Stan Wawrinka won won three majors. Marin Cilic won a major. Um, Murray uh, Murray's a little bit more murky because it was originally a big four, and then it sort of separated itself into a big three. Rather than only having that for a two to three year span, we could have potentially had that this entire time, and I think that that is um, where Juan Martín Del Potro comes in. Where in all of the majors from basically 2010 through 2015, 16, it, there was there was only going to be three winners, and that was it, you know. And I think that Juan Martín Del Potro really could have put himself in that position where he could have gotten, I think, potentially maybe five or six majors, uh, and really been a contender. Yeah, that's actually I was just about to ask you, and I was just thinking about that myself. How many? Again, let's assume that he maybe only has like one injury because I, I hate to assume that like no injuries because we're not living in a perfect world. But let's not assume that he had like four operations done on the same wrist. I think he wins at least four majors. I think he wins the the U.S. Open. I think he is like a c- consistent contender. 
He could have pulled off a Wimbledon. I don't really see him rolling Garros. I don't really see him contending. Although he, by the way, for such a tall, hardcore player, makes the semifinals regularly. So respect to him for that. And I think he pulls off an Australian if his fitness is good enough. Um, I think he's anywhere in the four to six range. And that puts a huge dent into the GOAT conversation. Do I think it like necessarily break? Like I still think Federer, Nadal, Djokovic are still like the big three, but not as dominant with like each having 20 slams. And I mean, honestly, thank God that Vavrinka kind of just came in there, won three in three separate years, 14, 15, 16, Australia, Roland Garros, US Open. Murray sprinkled in some there. Um, but yeah, it would have been really nice, honestly, see Delpo kind of get in that mix and really just make it more interesting for the men's game because it was always kind of like, Okay, well, there's only really three options as to who's going to win. Oh, Federer is injured. Okay, there's only two. Oh, Nadal's injured. Okay, there's only two. So it would have made it a lot more interesting. Yeah, I also think that it would have given some belief to younger players that they can beat the big three, that there are more options. Like, yes, they did see Stan. They saw Marin Cilic win a major whatever. But I think to have had that constantly throughout the era would have been at least some sort of mental, you know, positive for them. What I would say that echoes the point that Marcus just made is that I don't think we would see the level of separation that the big three have from everyone else right now on in terms of major counts. I think we would be closer to a spread of maybe 16 to 18 rather than they're all going to end up at now 20 plus. So so that's where I think it, it, it happens. I personally, in terms of the majors, I think he probably gets two to three U.S. Opens, in my opinion. And I think the other major that he contends at, like let's, let's assume he has one wrist, wrist surgery. I think that's fair, right? He has one wrist surgery. I think he probably gets two to three Wimbledons too. Because realistically on grass, there just isn't a lot of players that are very good on that surface. And Delpo really could have made some nice runs in there. So I would I would go with Delpo, especially towards the later 2010s if he's healthy, right? I mean, Djokovic basically just plowed through the field over and over again, especially now. Like, we, we've spoken about this on our preview for 2022, that, that Wimbledon is going to be Djokovic's ace in the hole because there's nobody to compete with him anymore. You know, that's a major where I think Delpo could have done some damage over the years and really gotten, like, two or three, like I mentioned. So, yeah, I, I just think that he really becomes the prototype um, of, of, a, of a perfect what-if scenario. And the last thing that I'll say about Delpo is that if you look at the game now, it is Del Potro. <laughs> like, all these guys, Medvedev, Zverev... Um, uh, Medvedev, Zverev, uh, Tsitsipas, they're all really tall, uh, big baseline players that stole this archetype basically from Del Potro because before Del Potro, nobody believed that a big guy could move like that. Nobody believed that you could be a big man and be a baseliner. Del Potro was the first one to really do that and invent this sort of archetype of a, of a big guy with a big serve who's a baseliner. That didn't exist. It was always like a Goran Ivanisevic, big guy sort of stereotype of just like, you know, whack your serve, get up to net, 
win one Wimbledon in your lifetime, mission accomplished, you know? And, and Del Potro was the one to redefine it, and I think that tennis has moved in the direction of players like Juan Martin Del Potro. And the equivalency that I'll give for another sport very quickly is Steph Curry. Steph Curry might be the most consequential player of the past 30 years in the NBA because everybody has started to play like him. Everybody's hitting the three. Everybody's strategy is around the three-point line. And that's what I see Del Potro as. Del Potro might be the most consequential player of the late 2010s because everybody just moved to play like him. I mean, yes and no, because there there aren't that many guys who are six foot six. So he is definitely the most successful player. There's the most successful tall player as of now post Murat Safin. Murat Safin was like the first kind of really tall-ish guy, maybe even Isovich as well, but to like do really well as a baseliner. Then came Delpo, where he took it to another level, and he's quite tall. He's six foot six. So now we're seeing that kind of with Medvedev and Zverev. Um, but from a power standpoint, yeah, I think a lot of people also took a lot of, of things from like Federer and, and Djokovic and kind of just trying to modernize it. Um, but the problem is all these new guys kind of lack that variety and that kind of skill that those guys possess, which is why they had such a tough everybody's had such a tough time breaking into the kind of the slam conversation with them that we mentioned Andy Murray before he's another big what if um and I'm just going to throw out this this I'm going to read off something here and I want you to take a listen Andy Murray has played in 11 Grand Slam finals 11 he's only won three yeah I think if I'm remembering right he has the most losses in a Grand Slam final without winning it. It's Australia. He has went to like six Australian Open finals or five Australian Open finals. He lost all of them to Djokovic. I'm going to read them off right now. 2008. Okay, 2008, he's still a puppy, basically. He makes it to the U.S. Open, gets smoked by Federer. Okay, 2010 is where it kind of starts. So he makes it to the Australian Open final, loses to Fed. 2011 Australian Open final, loses to Djokovic when Djokovic all of a sudden stopped eating gluten and all of a sudden became the GOAT. Wow. Um, Then he loses to Fed at Wimbledon. He's getting closer. Then he finally picks up his first slam, beats Djokovic at the US Open in five sets. Does respect to that. Then he loses to Djokovic again at the Australian. Then he wins Wimbledon. He actually beats Djokovic in the final. Then he loses the Australian again to Djokovic. Then he loses the Australian again to Djokovic in 2016. Uh, he makes the French Open final? I didn't even know that. Jesus Christ. Okay, well, he lost Djokovic there too. That uh, was that was Afro Andy Murray. If anyone remembers that, you remember that. Now you know exactly what era of Andy Murray that is. That was when Andy Murray grew out his hair. He had a giant like ginger afro. It was awesome. Yeah. Maybe he would have won more slams if he didn't have that afro. Anyways... Um, he takes the Elda Djokovic there, and then he and he beats Raonic in the, in the 26 Wimbledon. So, I mean, so that's eight Grand Slam finals that he's lost, and a, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, six of them against Novak Djokovic. So let's just say he flips at least three of those, maybe two, three. I mean, that puts him at five or six slams uh that also diminishes the amount of slams that Djokovic potentially has which would result in a wholly different 
goat debate that we're having that's currently ongoing between the three, the big three. So Andy Murray is a huge what if, if he was able to kind of break through, uh, at least clip a couple more slams, just at least two. Give me two. So here's my thing with Andy Murray. I love Andy. I hear you. He also won two gold medals, by the way. Denied Novak and Fed their gold medals. That's the reason they don't have it is because Andy Murray is like God tier in, in the Olympics for some reason. That should be noted. Yes. And I and as mentioned, I hold Olympics as high as a major. So, you know, for me, that's a big deal. And it was on home turf in Wimbledon, huge amount of pressure. So that 2012 one is no joke. I think you're asking the wrong question. I think the what if when Andy Murray is not whether he flips the script against Djokovic. I think it's what if Andy Murray is 22 years old in 2021? What if Andy Murray is 21 years old in 1990? What if he's in a different era that's not with these three? How many majors does he win? And you're scoffing and you're saying like, I don't know, but that's what makes it a good what if. No, I I mean, I'm scoffing because that can be said about a lot of guys. That could be said about Vavrinka, who won three in the big three era. That can be also said about Del Potro, who won one. But it, we think in the big three era, he could have won anywhere between four and six. Imagine if he didn't play in the big three era. We also think that he could have won way more. Yes, but then that's two what-ifs for Del Potro. It's it, does he not get injured and is he in another era? So no, you can't say Del Potro. Stan Vavrinka, I think, is legitimate. However... I think when you factor in the two gold medals and the fact that Andy Murray is widely respected by the big three as being like the best player that they have each respectively faced that's not each other, I think that's why you can ask it about Andy Murray. And I think that Andy Murray, despite him only having, I think, three three majors, right? We went through them is wildly higher up on the greatest of all time discussion, right? than people who may have more majors than him. It must also be noted that he did have the number one ranking in 2016, and he also won the World Tour Finals in 2016. So 2016 was a pretty sweet year for Andy Murray. Um, yeah. He, yeah, that 2016 year, he is the only player to have won World Tour Finals, Olympic gold, and he won a major that year, right? Yes, he won Wimbledon, and he and he made the final of the French, and actually he made the final of three slams that year: Australia, French Open, Wimbledon. Uh, not sure he had a, he didn't do that good at the U.S. Open, I don't think. And then he wins the World Tour final, so 2016 has to be his best season. Yes, that's peak Andy Murray. That and he was number one in the world. He is the only player I I think again I think to have won a major, the Olympic gold, and World Tour finals in the same year i think i read that somewhere which is a phenomenal accomplishment even if he's not the only one to do it that is a phenomenal accomplishment and that's something that neither nadal fed or djokovic have done yeah the only other guy who i think who could have maybe done it is agassi um because i know that he for sure wait did he win a slam in 96 ah i guess frank's gonna get on google anyways while frank's googling that um Speaking of Agassi, Agassi is an, is another one of our big what ifs, um, and and the reason why we're talking about Agassi today. Uh, what do you got, Frank? Didn't win a major in '96. Okay, so he's out of the picture. Murray, 
you win the golden ticket. Uh, Agassi is a huge what if be just purely based off of this man's talent. And his talent at the time was the most supreme talent that anyone had ever seen in tennis by far. It wasn't even a debate at the time. And I th- I think that he... if There are two, kind of two what-ifs. One what-if is what if there's no Pete Sampras kind of during that era, which results in him winning, I mean, at least, I think, 12 slams total. He keeps winning. He keeps winning a couple more Australians and a couple more U.S. Opens. Then the other what-if is if the guy... Like towards the end of his career, when he got together with Brad Gilbert, he changed the way he played and his mental game and his approach to tennis. Because early on in the '90s, it was all about you know image is everything, totally flashy. And then he had the kind of the period where he started taking crystal meth and kind of get doing these other things. If he had kind of that same attitude all the way through, how many slams does he get? How many you know World Tour finals does he win? I think he wins at least three or four more slams. Honestly, I mean he's already got eight which is phenomenal. Uh, four Australians, one Wimbledon, one French, two U.S. Opens. So I think that he is a huge uh, what-if in the in the, uh, you know kind of history of tennis. Yes. So this was one that we highlighted to discuss. I don't think it's number two on our what-if list, but it's probably number three. I think Australian Opens, I honestly think it stays the same. French Open definitely stays the same. I don't see that changing. I think the two majors that eclipse Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. I think he probably gets three Wimbledons at least. And I think that he probably gets like two to three U.S. Opens too. You have to realize that Pete Sampras basically blocked off those two majors for over a decade, right? So I think you can conservatively say... Agassi gets to 12. Truthfully, I think he probably surpasses Emerson and gets to 14. And at that point, you're dealing with someone whose resume is potentially 14 majors, career grand slam, career golden slam, right? That's a that's a pretty compelling resume. And I think that that makes the discussion of the greatest of all time much more complicated when Federer had only gotten, you know, when, when Fed won 14, 15 majors, when he surpassed Sampras, it was like, oh, Fed's greatest of all time. That's it. There was no debate, you know, no nothing at that point. I think if Fed had done that while Agassi had, you know, this theoretical resume, I think we're talking about a much more serious discussion until Fed got to like 17, 18. Then it's like, okay, there's overwhelming evidence that, you know, Fed's better. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think Agassi is a really interesting one. The drug use. What if Brad Gilbert was his coach from the start, right? Like stuff like that. Because when Sampras and Agassi were at Boletari together, everybody thought that Agassi was the one that was going to be the superstar, the, the perennial generational talent. Uh, Sampras never trained at Boletari. No, he no no he. You're thinking Jim Courier. Oh, I am. Thank you. But uh, but regardless, when when they were younger, the the public and the USTA thought that Agassi was the one that was going to be the 
the consequential the the perennial talent i mean let's be let's be very real talent wise duh i mean this guy had was supremely talented at the sampras okay sampras's serve was on another level but you're talking everything else okay maybe besides the volley agassi just had more feel for the game and as the game was kind of modernizing when it was becoming more of a baseliners game uh you know i think he was just more talented the only problem was his head a little bit and also i mean damn sampras's serve Back then, it still mattered a lot, and the return. Basically, I mean, Agassi basically is always like one of the best servers of all time against one of the best returners of all time, and I guess the serve wins, man. I mean, you know, because Agassi's serve was average at best, really, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I don't think that's a hot take at all. I think average at best is an accurate description, but uh, yeah, I think I think that the the what if with Agassi boils down. I would say, actually, even beyond the coaching, beyond anything, it boils down to one match, the 1990 or 1989 U.S. Open final, when Sampras won his first major, right? That was 1990, but Agassi hadn't really arrived. I mean, he arrived, but not really arrived on the scene yet. I don't think he even played Agassi there. Now, the biggest what if for me is if Andre Agassi continued to wear underwear while playing tennis. Um, That's ridiculous, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, we went on the Agassi tangent for a little too long. We're going to get to our other second biggest what-if in our opinion in tennis history. Marcus, go ahead. Bjorn Borg. Um, Bjorn Borg was, at the time, one of the greatest tennis players of all time. Had accumulated, I believe, 12 Grand Slams it was, and retired at the ripe age of 26, which is extremely young in in tennis terms nowadays. Um, but at the time, it was still like, you know, he still had a lot of tennis in him. What do you got for us? I'd also like to point out that you are a clown. You can wear the dunce cap. Agassi beat Sampras. I mean, uh, Sampras beat Agassi in that U.S. Open final in 1990. I'm not going crazy. Oh, all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if Agassi, and he destroyed him. Sampras beat him in three sets. If If Agassi, I think the question becomes, if Agassi wins that match, right, does he not have this sort of like... Uh, yips let's call it against playing Sampras because even in like any sort of documentary about Agassi himself like he admits like he completely got in his own own head every single time he played Sampras yeah you got to read open by Agassi he goes into really deep detail about him him and the Sampras relationship it's it's fascinating um back to Borg Borg won I believe what was it uh, four, five, six, seven, eight. No, he won twelve slams, didn't he? Twelve, twelve, yeah. Right, but what were the uh, what was the count? I believe it was like what five Frenches, seven Wimbledon's, or seven Frenches, five Wimbledon's. I think it was seven Frenches, five Wimbledon's. Oh my God, we're total noobs. Um, anyways, Bjornborg retires at twenty six. Literally just walks out after the nineteen eighty one U.S. Open after losing the McEnroe and just flies off and never plays tennis again really i mean he came back in the 90s with a wooden racket it was a complete joke what do you got he won 11 majors that's why we couldn't get this number it was six french opens and five wimbledons five consecutive wimbledons and five consecutive no 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 four consecutive french opens that's what it was right so Bjorn Borg if he continues to let's say age 29 right let's just say he goes to like maybe 29 30 he absolutely cuts it off I think he wins at least three more Frenches he wins at least one two more Wimbledons so that puts him at 15 
and he's got to at some point clip a U.S. Open. So I think he could potentially even get up to 16 slams had he not stopped at 26. I think that's a realistic number. Um, but the guy said, nah, screw it. You know, I'm, I'm done at 26. I'm just going to basically create my own underwear line that literally everybody in Sweden wears. When I go to Sweden, it's really disturbing. Everybody's wearing Bjorn Borg shit. It's insane. You know what my mom got me as a Christmas present a few years ago? Oh, God, no. Bjorn Borg underwear. Oh, Jesus Christ. I love this guy. You know I love Borg. So, yeah, I'm all in on this. Um, I'd also like to point out that Borg won um, a few, three world, at the time, world tour finals. He won three of them, which is actually a very pretty strong accomplishment. So, yeah, I mean, Borg, (laughs) it's really, really hard to sort of overlook that as as being one of the bigger what-ifs in tennis history. Uh, And there is one more what-if that we're going to just give a little sneak preview on. It's going to be its own episode because we actually think that this potentially could be the biggest what-if in tennis history. It's just it doesn't apply to a single player. It's just the biggest what-if question in general tennis history. Marcus. What is that question? Uh, the question is, what if players actually played the Australian Open pre-1998? Uh, 1988, apologies, 1988, if everybody actually... Because in case for those, for those who don't know, the Australian Open was technically a Grand Slam. However, the top players never went down. And you would have like some really random... If you go take a look at the Australian Open winners prior to 1988, you'll find some really weird, just random names who haven't done anything else on tour, but they will win the Australian Open. And the reason was that because basically the the marketing of it wasn't that big. And players thought, "Uh, why would I go all the way down to Australia when the rest of the tour is going to come right back to North America and Europe right afterwards? So they said no we're not going to go play but uh and then in in the 90s it kind of became more popular and that's why people started picking up more slams yeah and i think that's that's actually a very understated reason as to why the big three have been able to separate themselves as much as they have from the rest of the players in tennis history is because basically there was three majors up until 1988 that's like 25% less majors than there are currently. So it's it's a really interesting question and and we're going to explore that on an ex, on a future podcast. Um so thanks for listening everybody. If you have a what if that we missed or you want to comment on the ones that we've spoken about, definitely DM us at Breakpoint Podcast 7 on Instagram. And uh, we hope you guys have enjoyed some of the new content we've been pushing out on Instagram as well. Uh, Shout out to Sandra. She did a very fantastic job for us with all these templates and showing us actually how to, um, you know, market ourselves. So um, we will definitely link her uh, in some of our posts and just thank you to her. So uh, that's going to do it for me. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time. Take it easy.